the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The speed was shocking. The fall of Afghanistan came not in months, nor in weeks, but in days. And it came after two decades of war and the deaths of 100,000 Afghans and 6,000 Americans. There are many questions to be answered now, but among the most pressing are, what needs to be done for the Afghans seeking refuge and what can we personally do to help them? So on this very timely and difficult topic, we are very pleased to have with us uh, two very well-informed guests who have been very much involved in trying to help alleviate some of the sad stories that we're hearing associated with this. Anila Afzali, who is the Executive Director of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, the American Muslim Empowerment Network, also known as MAPS, amen. Anila, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's an honor to be here with you, Jeff. And we have Chris Franco, a uh, former army commander and an Afghanistan veteran who has uh, uh, very deep perspectives and experiences with us as well. Chris, thank you for joining us as well. That's an honor to be here, Jeff. Really appreciate you having us on. Anila, let's begin with you. Uh, you have personal and family ties in Afghanistan. Uh, what is the situation of your family members? Do you still have some family members and friends in Afghanistan? What is their status right now? Yes, I'm absolutely directly impacted by what's happening. And I speak for so many other Afghan Americans who have family and loved ones in Kabul or in other parts of Afghanistan, uh, currently in danger and trying to evacuate. I have a total of 26 family members who are currently in Kabul uh, and who I am trying to evacuate. Uh, they are people who have been journalists, uh, SIV applicant, uh, lawyer, doctor, uh, somebody who worked for the bank, uh, the foreign organizations and more, and their families are in direct danger right now with the growing threat of the Taliban, the door-to-door -door searches that they're doing, the uh, uh, flagrant violations of human rights abuses that we're seeing, the restrictions that they're imposing, and so much more. So I have been working on trying to get them evacuated and currently in the process of preparing humanitarian parole applications for each one of them. And that process has just been exhausting overwhelming and, and, and costly, but then also ultimately there seem to be no real answers. We don't know if these people who are at risk, who are in danger, will actually get the opportunity to escape. Uh, and it's a harrowing time. It's an appalling time to see what's going on and hearing reports every night, uh, given the time difference every night, I try to connect with my family members just to hear from them what's going on on the ground. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people here uh, in, the, in America hear specifically about the on-the-ground situation, how dangerous, how harrowing, uh, how nerve-wracking it is, but uh, that's part of why I'm glad we're talking now so uh, your audience can get a sense of what's going on and the traumatic experience that so many of us are experiencing right now. What do they tell you? There probably is absolutely not even a minute that they can relax their guard, that they can settle down, relax at all, is there? That must be extremely stressful for them. What do they tell you? 
That's exactly right. Uh, they are telling me about new restrictions that they're hearing about every day. Yesterday, I heard about the fact that the Taliban want to uh, ban smartphones or phones with cameras in the hands of girls or women. So again, very sexist, very misogynistic kinds of policies. Uh, and every day seems to be a new policy or new proposal or new restriction uh, that I'm hearing about. Uh, they are certainly nervous, scared, worried, anxious, all the negative feelings you can imagine. Uh, and as much as they try to cover to try to sort of protect me, I feel like mm -hmm. from from hearing about how um, how endangered they feel. Um, I know it because I've had those direct conversations with some of them. I've heard the pleas in their voices. I've looked at the pictures of the sweet little princesses of uh, that are the daughters of my uh, cousin. Uh, and I worry about the future for these individuals, the entire generation of Afghans who are going to be uh, having their dreams and hopes and and. Uh, livelihood just completely destroyed because of the Taliban coming in, uh, recapturing uh, the, the country and imposing their brutality on the people. Chris, if you would, uh, you spent, I believe, about a year in Afghanistan uh, serving in the U.S. Army. Tell us a little bit about your service there and what your experience was like. Yeah, yeah, we were uh, there. Uh as a part of a year-long deployment in southern Afghanistan. At the time, I was a, an executive officer of the 2nd Command of our infantry company and worked very closely with uh, our Afghan brothers, uh, serving as interpreters throughout our year-long deployment. I think that's where uh, the bond that carried out throughout the years really was forged, was just through through mutual uh, sacrifice. I mean, the very first combat mission that our, our unit was on, uh, our unit was hit by a suicide bomber that targeted our platoon leader and the interpreter and nearly killed both of them uh, and wounded 15 others. And the very first person killed in our deployment uh, was one of our Afghan brothers serving as an interpreter. So, uh, you know, really seeing firsthand uh, the sacrifices that our Afghan uh, brothers and sisters are making uh, personally and, and the danger that put themselves in and their families in throughout that year-long deployment and really hearing about, um, you know, the threats being made by the Taliban uh, to their family throughout that, that year-long deployment. But they were, I mean, we were, we were in it together uh, through the end, uh, and we were there during the, uh, the Afghan surge of uh, 2009 and 2010, uh, all throughout uh, the southern uh, part of Afghanistan and uh, Zabul, Kandahar, and Helmand provinces. You know, there the are events unfolding right now and that have been unfolding for some time now, uh, particularly as we were uh, getting this evacuation under wraps, really resurfaced a lot of uh, a lot of those memories and, and just the need to do something uh, as, as the, the threat to the lives of our Afghan brothers and sisters is quite great. Uh, it was before the evacuation, even more so now that we've officially uh, withdrawn from Afghanistan and, and options are, are quite limited right now for evacuation. We still have tens of thousands of our Afghan allies and at-risk Afghans to, uh, to help evacuate. How does that weigh on you, Chris? I, <laughs> for being honest, it's been a brutal absolutely brutal uh, last month or two. I mean, we made a promise and we did not honor that promise. And, um, you know, just being in touch with other veterans uh, that are trying to help out, uh, being in touch daily with my Afghan brothers and their families uh, before the evacuation and especially during the evacuation, even now, I mean, like Anila touched on, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a very tough situation right now and it's very dynamic and, uh, it is a roller coaster, and, and really hearing the, the panic, the, uh, the stress, the fear, 
the glimmers of hope. Uh, I mean, it, there's there's just so much going on right now in Afghanistan that most folks here in the United States, America, just don't understand the depth of uh, of the the situation right now. And uh, it's been tough. I mean, it, it's you know trying to do my best to to keep their hopes alive because that is incredibly important in a situation like this, while also managing the um, you know, the, the frustrations I have with how our government uh, showed up in, in the evacuation, the war, and in what's going on right now. It's, it's a lot to manage, and um, I mean, there's going to be a lot of processing to happen down the road, but right now, just trying to do my best to, uh, to honor the promise and hopefully get uh, my interpreters, their families, and other families uh, that are at risk out. Were you both caught off guard by the speed? of the fall of the Afghanistan government over there, or did you expect that? I, I would say there was definitely information in advance that something like that would happen. Uh, I think a lot of that information was, was known uh, at the time of making decisions, and it may have been ignored or not given enough attention. Uh, some of the things that absolutely surprised me uh, were our behavior, like leaving the Bahram airport or uh, just overnight abandoning it without notice to some of the Afghans there, um, some of the communications around the Air Force uh, support uh, and, and failing there. Uh, even the way we set up the Afghan army, it was really based on a, a model that we use. And as soon as we removed the air support, uh, we really left the, the Afghan army uh, without actual protection to do, the, to, the, to do their job. So I don't think any of that was surprising that they're not able to uh, sort of uh, in, engage in that struggle against the Taliban uh, when they don't have the support. And many of the people on the ground had not been paid for months. Mm -hmm. There was so much corruption. There was so much, you know, what they call ghost armies, people uh, identifying or military contractors identifying individuals who were part of their roles but actually were not. Um, so there was a lot of things that I think could have been uh, foreshadowed that would result in what we saw with the collapse of the Afghan uh, army. Uh, at the same time, what really, um, I think, appalled me was both the hasty evacuation in a way that was from my perspective, very unprepared. We didn't have one point person, for instance, who can actually answer questions and guide the process of evacuating uh, the vulnerable Afghans who we put in danger. We didn't have something like that, even though we had 20 years that we were in Afghanistan, we had plenty of time to prepare for a withdrawal, but that that didn't happen. Uh, and then I also was very disappointed with the Biden administration with respect to some of the lies made uh, about the Afghan army or the Afghan people or touting the evacuation as a success when it in fact seemed to show complete disregard, callous disregard for the lives, safety, and well-being of both the people of Afghanistan, but then also Americans and other foreign nationals who were in Afghanistan also needing to evacuate from, from the incoming uh, Taliban. It would be disingenuous to say from our government that we didn't have intelligence that there was a risk of you know, the Taliban resurging and resurging rather quickly. You know, how quick that would be, uh, you know, I don't think we, we can say that per se, but um, it has been just dumbfounded and infuriating to see, you know, we have, we, again, we had 20 years, 20 to come up with some semblance of a plan to at a bare minimum ensure the safe evacuation of our own personnel and our Afghan allies uh, and those at risk as a result of the war in Afghanistan. Um, and that didn't happen. And I think, you know, seeing how quickly, um, 
things unfolded and, and fell apart um, really showcases that complete lack of empathy, that lack of planning and the lack of focus of this being a priority of, of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, period. Uh, I mean, I, I early on was very frustrated with the the date of September 11th being given uh, when, you know, any date for any sort of exit out of a, a theater of war should be really centered around the critical tasks that need to take place before, uh, you know, closing up shop, so to speak. In this case, evacuating our own personnel, our Afghan allies, equipment, you name it. And that clearly wasn't what was driving this um, this evacuation and, and the, the plan that didn't exist. Um, I mean... This is this is one of those moments in our nation's history um, where we really have to uh, learn from our own hubris and apathy, and ensure that something like this never happens again. But the sad reality is that it happened, and it is happening, and the results of of our actions and inaction um, are are putting millions of people at risk, and uh, have not honored the promise that we made, uh, which you know that that failure to honor that promise is going to have. Um, significant ramifications on the geopolitical front, and uh, we're going to have to address those as a nation. Mm -hmm. What exact problems uh, are impacting the ability of individual Afghans to flee from their country right now? What are the biggest problem points that they're encountering? There are a lot of problems. Uh, number one, there is no uh, clear evacuation route. Like people don't know, there are no flights that are directly evacuating Afghans um, in certain instances where there have been flights, even those which have been privately funded. Uh, there have been blocks on those flights being allowed to take vulnerable Afghans out. Uh, there have been uh, certain restrictions with respect to documentation, people needing passports. In some cases, those passports have been destroyed. In some cases, they were destroyed by the embassy when we closed the embassy there. So people don't have documentation. Uh, they don't have passports. Some people's passports have expired, uh, but they have no way uh, of renewing their passports. There are visa restrictions, uh, both for people uh, getting into sort of neighboring countries, but then also into other countries as well. Uh, there are uh, sort of the, the the whole processing uh, of various other visas, like the special immigrant visa, P1, P2, and P3, all of those processes uh, are significantly backlogged and delayed. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the humanitarian parole option, which is now the very popular option because it's supposed to be an expedited method, but that alone has its own shortcomings and challenges and obstacles, including the fact that you need somebody in the U.S. to apply for you. You need to have a financial sponsor. You need to pay a $575 individual fee per person. Uh, so for, for my family alone, that's about $15,000 just in the fee. And who knows how long or if it will even be uh, granted or processed in time. Um, and there's the continuing risk of the Taliban going door to door, doing these searches, uh, trying to find these people. Some people are in hiding. They're staying at certain safe houses. They're moving and changing locations. Uh, and there's the lack of information about uh, sort of who can leave when or through what process. Uh, and there's the Taliban uh, getting support to even uh, uh, sort of act like they are other people, including from the Department of State, contacting folks and telling mm -hmm. them to show up places uh, and uh, only to, to harm them. So uh, there's a risk of knowing who's telling the truth, what information you can believe, uh, and uh, also all of the, the folks working on the ground trying to fix some of the logistics uh, to, to be able to evacuate folks from Afghanistan, take them to third countries, and then process them to come 
here to the US or other places where folks may have family members or loved ones or other connections. So there's a lot of different problems. Those are just some of them. Uh, you know, a part of what we're dealing with right now is in, in those gaps that were there from the evacuation, a number of organizations stepped forward to fill those gaps. So be it the Truman National Security Project, Task Force Pineapple, um, you know, No One Left Behind, Human Rights First, a number of organizations really stepped in and, and uh, were providing that kind of guidance and information on the ground uh, to folks that needed to get out. And now that we're, we're officially withdrawn, we're, we're coming into a place right now where those same individuals who were helping out during the evacuation and are helping now um, are now interacting with um, the Department of State and the U.S. government really trying to insert itself and in, in taking a more active role in this. Um, but it's a really difficult situation for a vast majority of the Afghans that need to get out because the, the uh, priority remains with American citizens, legal permanent resident green, green card holders and um, mm -hmm. you know, our special immigrant visa holders, uh, not those that are eligible, those P1, P2 or H, uh, humanitarian parole folks that Anil had mentioned. Uh, but it's, it's a really challenging situation for folks because uh, some of the biometrics data uh, that we use throughout the, the war uh, is now in the Taliban's hand. Uh, some of the lists of the individuals that we're trying to evacuate were, uh, you know, the Taliban have now. Um, there are, in fact, searches going on, um, you know, in different areas of Afghanistan to look for folks that have ties to uh, the U.S. government, to the Afghan government, um, to, to other organizations within um, the country. And it is a very dangerous time for folks trying to get out and a very difficult way to get out, because right now, uh, you need a passport. You need a passport, you need a visa, you need official documentation. And a lot of folks, to include some of the folks that I've been trying to help get out, one of my interpreters in this family had to burn their documentation uh, before trying to attempt to get into Hamid Karzai International Airport because of the Taliban checkpoints. Uh, so we have folks that uh, are caught in this catch-22 of, you know, you need, you need the following documents and have gone through all these processes to have a ticket out or even have a chance of getting out. Uh, but so many of, of those documents are, are nearly impossible to obtain or were very difficult to obtain prior to the evacuation. Um, so it's, it is, it is a very challenging time. Even those folks who have the documentation, who've gone through those hoops and hurdles and everything else, uh, like in my family, uh, one member is a SIV applicant. They applied in 2018. And it's 2021 and they still haven't gotten approved. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have everything to qualify and they actually had their interview on August 17th to get their final approval. Well, the takeover happened on August 15th. Those uh, appointments, those interviews, of course, got canceled. So these people are now abandoned. But I say that because even those who had the documents, who jumped through all the hoops, because we were so backlogged, because we were uh, understaffing the processing uh, of these special immigrant visas for the past several years, there are many people who got caught in that backlog and as a result now are in very serious danger. I also want to add another complication or another challenge is the different definitions of family. So we only allow immediate family members, meaning spouse or children under 21. And uh, for a lot of Afghans, uh, that, that definition of family is insufficient because they have a much broader definition of family that includes sisters and brothers and grandparents and uncles and more. And when you're actually talking about the risk to families, it's not just to the immediate kids who are, you know, 18 and under or the husband and wife. The Taliban will go after uncles and aunts and grandparents and, uh, and, and grandchildren and 
more. So the, the risk actually extends well beyond the immediate core family as we define it here in America. Do we have any feel for, uh, both of you have spoken about the door-to-door -door searches, the uh, biometric data that is now in the hands of the Taliban. Do we have any feel for the level of retaliation that has in fact already occurred or is occurring? There's certainly things coming through limited channels on uh, social media, but there, I mean, kidnappings, mm -hmm. many videos of kidnappings, people being put in, uh, in the trunks of cars, um, some folks being tortured, others killed, others, they just don't know what happened to them. They've, they've just disappeared after these searches. Um, yeah, there are more and more reports of uh, coming out that, you know, the Taliban has, has not changed. They are absolutely not respecting, uh, you know, basic human rights and committing atrocities. And uh, there's a concerted effort to uh, to ban. <laughs> Anila was talking about the the cell phones and other means to document what's happening on the ground to face and to avoid these kind of things from getting out. But they are they are ongoing. How does this represent? Uh, we've talked about the political, the economic, the personal. How does this, looking back at our country, uh, how does this represent a moral obligation for our nation, both individually and collectively? I think this is a real test of uh, whether or not we can live up to our moral values, uh, both as, as a country and the fact that we ourselves, uh, uh, beyond the indigenous uh, communities here, the First Peoples in our country, and those we forced uh, through the, the slave trade, but everybody else, they, they arrived as immigrants. Uh, and this is a real test of our morality as a country, whether we live true to our values uh, that are on the Statue of Liberty, for instance, and more. Uh, but beyond that, specifically with Afghanistan, it's a very unique situation because, again, these are not people asking for a handout. These are people who were made promises. They, they sacrificed themselves, their lives, their safety, their well-being, the family's well-being, uh, because we promised them a refuge and safety if they helped the U.S. and allied forces during our mission in Afghanistan. And they did their part. And we have betrayed uh, those very people who stepped up and even saved lives of, of U.S. troops and soldiers and made it so that, you know, 60,000 plus Afghans gave their life so that American soldiers do not have to be there or do not uh, have their lives lost. Uh, and they're, we're, we're abandoning them. We're betraying our promise to them. Not, not only what does that say about the, the moral obligation with the Afghan people, but what does that say and signify to the rest of the world and in other places where the U.S. may be engaged? How are other allies going to believe us when we make certain promises or tell them certain things? How is that going to put the safety and well-being of, of our troops, U.S. troops, and our country? Uh, how is it going to compromise that? We've heard a variety of responses, everything from uh, uh, voices such as Tucker Carlson on Fox saying, well, if we allow Afghan refugees into the country, it's going to dilute American culture. We hear those sort of perhaps extreme responses. But is there any evidence that we're finally beginning to approach this uh, in a bipartisan way across partisan divide in trying to come up with some solutions in this country and placing people? What's been your experience with that? This has been one of those efforts where there has been bipartisan support. I mean, there have certainly been instances where folks like uh, the Proud Boys have put out some disgusting uh, hunting permits for Afghan refugees and, and, you know, white nationalists and supremacists showing up to, to capitalize on this uh, particular crisis. Uh, but 
there have been a number of instances, you know, where folks across the political spectrum have really shown up and stood together uh, to call out the fact that this was a moral failing of our country. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we have a moral obligation to, to help evacuate our Afghan allies and, and those at risk as a result of our longest war. And uh, it's, it has given me some hope that we can stand together on something. I'm just going to say that I, uh, I also have been very much inspired by the bipartisan support uh, that we've been seeing uh, for welcoming, evacuating, and, and resettling Afghan refugees. Uh, another example, in addition to the things that uh, Chris mentioned, is the Welcomed Act that was introduced on September 3rd. That was a bipartisan bill that was introduced uh, specifically by Representative uh, Seth Moulton and Don Bacon. So one Democrat, one Republican, and it's getting bipartisan support. Uh, and there's other examples like that as well. So this isn't a partisan issue. And I think, in fact, one of the things that maybe uh, the Biden administration might have underestimated was the strong level, the, the bonds, the real strong connection between Afghans uh, and uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, soldiers and vets. And mm -hmm. to see the number of soldiers and vets step up right now because of those really deep bonds that they established over the course of 20 years in Afghanistan. Uh, and these are the people who are their brothers and sisters, and they saved them. And now they want to step up and save their Afghan siblings uh, to see that kind of uh, strong support and solidarity from the vet community and to know about the even the trauma that the vet uh, the veteran community is experiencing because mm -hmm. of our actions and our hasty retreat from Afghanistan in a really appalling way. Uh, that's all been uh, very much part of the conversation. And, and I know many, uh, many veterans and soldiers have contacted their members of Congress as well, including in places that are maybe more Republican um, and, uh, and with Democrats as well. There's been so much push uh, by, uh, again, bipartisan push uh, to really support and save Afghans right now. Well, we thank both Chris and Anila for their participation. They have suggested some excellent organizations. If you'd like to aid the Afghan refugees or those attempting to emigrate, we're putting those up on the screen right now. As we put them up, I might suggest that you either take a pen and a piece of paper or a smartphone to record those for your reference. So we thank you for joining us for this episode of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll do so again next week. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.